0: This is Danny Anderson of Mount Aloysius College, welcoming you once again to the Sectarian Review podcast. Uh, this one I have to thank Kristen Philippic for. Uh, she's, you know, the backbone of this network, the, our uh, press liaison, our intrepid press liaison. And uh, Kristen actually hooked me up uh, in conversation with Andrew Pesson. And uh, today we're going to be talking about his book, The Jewish God Question. And it's a really great book, and I'm really excited to talk about it. Um, Andrew, how are you?
1: I'm good, thanks. How are you doing?
0: I'm doing really, really well. Thank you again for uh, agreeing to uh, to show up on the show here and talk about this really excellent book. Uh, and again, you. Kristen and you—you, you, she was one of your students, right? <laughs>
1: Uh, years ago back in Kenyon College, one of my favorite students of all time.
0: Yes, she's one of my favorite people of all time, too. And, uh, and I don't thank her enough on the show for all she does for our entire network. Uh, but for me particularly, she's been a guest several times on the show herself. And and she always uh, c- connects me with people who um, she knows that I'll, I'll uh, be really interested in their work. And, and this is no exception. Uh, so this book, uh, well, let me first we get into the book. Um, Andrew, could you tell us just a little bit about yourself and, and where people might know you from?
1: Uh, Sure. So I'm a professor of philosophy at Connecticut College, where I've been um, since 2005, so 14 years. Uh, Prior to that, I taught at Kenyon College in Ohio, where I met uh, Kristen uh, for about 10 years. Um, And so that's my day job as a philosophy professor. Um, In uh, recent years, my interests have begun to evolve into um, issues concerning um, Jewish thought, Judaism, and, uh, and the state of Israel as well. And I have a, a part time job. I am the campus bureau editor for a news outlet called the Algeminer. Hard to spell, hard to say, but you know, you can get it. Algeminer. And that, that focuses on issues of concern having to do with Jews and Israel uh, primarily. So in that capacity, I keep a close eye on what's going on on campuses, primarily in North America um, with respect to Jews and, and Israel. So philosophy professor by day, campus bureau editor by night.
0: And I have to um, brag a little bit. You're sort of a, a, an actual celebrity. You were on the David Letterman show.
1: You know, I've used up about 11 of my 15 minutes of fame, as they say. So years ago, <laughs> I, I had the privilege of um, uh, performing in a couple of skits on the on the David Letterman show. It was uh, about a trio of superheroes, the strong guy, the fat guy, and the genius. And I, I was the genius. And so as I like to say to people, I'm not an actual genius. I just played one on TV. But... Uh, you know that's uh, it was a lot of fun and uh, it still gets a little bit of coverage quite a few years later
0: <laughs> well I was a big letterman fan I actually on the the late show his CBS run I actually I lived in New York at that time and, and I w- was able to go visit a few <laughs> tapings and, uh, uh-huh. so yeah now that was very exciting for me when I found that out yeah. so.
1: <laughs> it's it's, uh, you know it's available on my website andrewpesson.com. there's a, a link to uh, at least one of the clips
0: that's great and um, as always I will provide that kind of uh, those kinds of links in the show notes for this anybody who's listening to this just go to sectarianreviewpodcast.com. you'll easily find the show notes for this and I usually put it, I'm pretty liberal with the links that I put up on these and so I'll definitely include that one um, so let's talk a little bit about the book that you've written sure. here um, this was particularly interesting to me um, I didn't mention this before uh, it, but we started talking but I actually did my dissertation on Jewish American literature um, ah. and uh, and so this is kind of a special interest interest to me. Um, I actually got to meet Philip Roth once, and so this is very close to my heart. And so um, your book, uh, The Jewish God Question, sort of um, encapsulates a a huge variety of Jewish thought since the Greek times, basically, all the way up until today. Uh, And it's written in kind of... oh sort of reflective forms right uh, they're very like one two page uh, summations of these very complicated um, ideas and you put them in a, in, into conversation um, How did this project begin for you?
1: Um, thank you for that question so um, you know I'm an academic philosopher and I've spent quite a number of years writing I guess what we call academic Articles, which I'm, I'm very proud of my, my particular work there. Um, These articles, you know, they can take hundreds of hours. They, you know, your, your brain sweats. They're really, they're hard work. But um, for a lot of academic articles, um, in the end, ten or I, I used to say, you know, ten or twelve people would read them, and uh, eleven would ignore it, and one would criticize it mercilessly. So, um, and I think there's a, you know, it's a joke, but there's a, there's a lot of value to that. But about ten years ago, I just, I started thinking that. I happen to love philosophy, and I love it as an academic pursuit, but I think it really has tremendous value for lots and lots of people, not just professional philosophers. I really think it should be disseminated more widely, that a lot of people would benefit from it, a lot of people would enjoy it. So about 10 years ago, I sort of started switching my focus a little bit to, uh, I suppose we could say popularizing philosophy, or at least writing philosophy in a way that's more accessible and interesting to the general public. So that began with a couple of books um, about 10 years ago. One was called The 62nd Philosopher, which is just a bunch of really short essays, 500 words or fewer, Um, each one just presenting an interesting or provocative idea, hoping to start a conversation, as you sort of put it a moment ago, Um, uh, a type of thing you could read one or two of at a time, hopefully get your mind tingling, and then put it aside until the next time. Uh, And I also published a book called The God Question um, 10 years ago, Uh, which is a little bit longer essays. I think they were like 750 words. But the goal was not to write like an intense, deep, hard-to-read abstract study of the history of philosophers thinking about God. That would be an academic project. But instead to pick out from some very famous thinkers and a few not-so-famous thinkers in the history of thinking about God and related questions. um, This is the most interesting ideas and the interesting thoughts the interesting concepts and so each chapter stands alone uh this is the god question uh and each one just picks out something that hopefully will get your your mind tingling if you're interested in um generally speaking the god question i actually wanted to call that book the god questions Mm. but the the publisher thought that was not a good idea so it's the god question but really there's many many questions which fall under that heading anyway that was 10 years ago I've, i've published a couple of other books since sort of in the vein of uh, accessible philosophy. Um, and so when I turned to this topic, I was sort of following this this model. The, the God question, just because of the history of the discipline, is primarily Christian thinkers. It, it gets to some atheists once it gets into the modern period, but it's primarily Christian thinkers with a handful of Jewish thinkers sprinkled in. But, um, you know, after I wrote that book over the past few years, especially, I've gotten more interested in Jewish thought, and I realized Um, I had developed a kind of competence, not expertise, but competence in the history of Christian thinking, philosophical thinking about God and related matters. But I knew very little about what the the Jews had to say. And so um, with my growing interest in Jewish thought, um, it was time to sort of go back and begin learning what the Jews have had to say about these same sorts of questions, which is what ultimately resulted in the Jewish God question.
0: Yeah. And it's a really great project and and it fits right along with a theme that we've got running here on the show um, about taking kind of the best of academia and breaking it out of those institutional structures and bringing it to a wider audience um, so of people uh, who don't necessarily have or even need this sort of academic background, and uh, but it's something. It's like sharing this great research with the world, right? And and I think that it very much reminds me in, in another life, uh, another institution I used to work at. We did a, a little philosophy club. Uh, Nathan Gilmore and I of the Christian Humanist Podcast uh, called Socrates Cafe. And oh, yeah, once a month we would meet with students in the library and pose philosophical questions. Uh, and this really much, very much feels like uh, conversation starters. Along those, along that vein, uh, that you well, could, yeah, read a, a little essay together and and just discuss. And so, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that.
1: Thank you. No, that's exactly the goal. I mean, doing the idea is to inspire people too. So the, you know, these essays, I think they're I don't know eight or nine hundred words, so roughly two full pages each. So you can choose any one you know, an isolation from the others. They are also they can be connected in various ways. But you you know, you start with one, and the idea is to to write the piece i've also noticed there's a certain style of writing philosophy even in the popular philosophy so to speak it's very sort of passive like someone will many of the popular books out there will say so and so you know believe that this and here was his argument here was his reasons and if you're you're interested it's interesting that's great but it's written in this kind of passive way as we all know it's much more engaging when someone stands in front of you and asserts something to you not merely tells you what someone else said but assert makes a claim in front of you. Many people will want to get engaged. Like if they agree with that claim, they want to hear more. If they disagree, they're going to you know start pushing back a little bit. So I I try to write each essay, if not quite in the voice of the different thinkers but from the perspective. So it almost feels like if it's an essay about one of Maimonides' ideas, it almost feels like Maimonides is standing in front of you and saying, here's what I think. And hopefully for many that will engage them in the conversation, engage them in some sort of dialogue. So that's at least the the goal and the intention of the book.
0: And that comes across really strongly. I was thinking the same thing. I was going to pose it as a question. Uh, This does feel like you're not arguing with them you're just sort of presenting their case as if you were them and and so these essays sometimes disagree with one another <laughs> and oh, uh, right. uh and, and so yeah but you would not know that from the voice that it's narrating it and so that's right. great
1: i mean it's still there was a period um actually in the god question when i was first writing that book i was thinking i should try to sound like that thinker so if i was if i was doing aquinas i should try to sound like aquinas and then i realized a i can't pull that off very well and b Uh, You know, no one wants to hear a medieval person speaking today in the 21st century. So instead, it's presenting the perspective of Aquinas. But obviously, it's in contemporary English with, you know, contemporary tone of voice. But, you know, as you mentioned, uh, chapters that are relevant to that essay. So if you feel like continuing a particular dialogue, you might start with, you know, here's what Maimonides says. But then it will link you to several other thinkers later who disagree with Maimonides and you'll you'll get to hear their perspectives as well.
0: Yeah, that's a great feature of the book, is those little references, cross-references uh, at the bottom of each of each essay. Uh, and this project reminds me very much of uh, Stephen West's Philosophize This project, uh, which is a podcast that I like to listen to. And he does a similar thing. He sort of takes a philosopher and takes any number of episodes to go through their thought in 30 minutes, but in very kind of contemporary terms, using contemporary examples to explain these concepts. And, um, and I'm just uh, infatuated with the idea of taking what is really kind of beautiful and cool about academia and bringing it to people who are not invested within those institutions. Um, right. Uh, and so I think it's a really great thing that you're doing. Thank you. um, Let's talk a little bit about the book itself. Um, okay. Okay so uh just for the listeners awareness uh we had a little bit of a connection break there and so we've switched to a landline there's there'll be a little change in the tone of Andrew's voice but uh it's still the same old Andrew so uh we continue uh, continue here so um Andrew so one thing that's interesting about this book the way it's arranged is four distinct sections and you don't begin with like biblical hebraic thought you sort of put you begin by placing jewish thinkers in the context of of greek thought and do you want to talk a little bit about the decision behind doing that
2: sure so the book um begins with a a couple of chapters um extracting some ideas from philo who lived um, roughly the early first century of the common era um and uh but of course judaism and the jewish people begin have a long history preceding that so depending on where um, where you stand on just how factual let's say the hebrew bible is um the idea is certainly like the first major jewish kingdom with the kingdom of david is dated something like um about a thousand bce before the common era or bc if you prefer um, and so the jewish people were around and doing stuff for a full millennium at least before you get to philo but most of the intellectual energy um, that the Israelites uh, and or Jews um, are expending during this millennium is really constructing the basic texts of the Jewish religion. So um, the Bible is coming into being during these centuries, and with its many, many books, decisions about which books go into the Bible, etc., um, are occurring, and uh, perhaps even more important in some respect, um, the Talmud is being developed and formed during these centuries. It doesn't actually get written down until a little bit later, but the intellectual energy is spent primarily in the academy developing and expounding the the law with a capital L, or maybe more accurately, the many laws which constitute um, what today we would call the Orthodox Jewish religion. Mm -hmm. So what the great Jewish thinkers were doing through these centuries wasn't what we would recognize per se, as philosophy. They were doing something else, important stuff. They were constructing the Jewish religion, constructing ultimately the Jewish identity, I would even say. And while there's philosophical aspects to, and you can see little bits of philosophizing along the way in these texts, they're not quite what we would recognize as philosophical texts. That's maybe a little arguable, but I think reasonable. Um, So it's not really until this guy Philo, who, as I said, lived in the early first century, that you get Jewish thinkers identified with Jewish thinkers who are beginning to engage with, really, the the philosophy as it was developed by the ancient Greeks, starting with Plato in the 5th century for the Common Era. Um, And so it seemed to make sense insofar as, it's not that this book is all philosophers, but um, it is representing philosophical thinking about God, so it sort of made sense to start with what many identify as sort of the first real philosopher in the Jewish tradition, which is this guy Philo.
0: Okay, great. And it is in this period, and in the book too, where kind of the... The big hits of, uh, of, of, que- the big questions are introduced. And so I thought as a way of structuring this interview, I could just hit on a couple of those. And then as we go sure. into the later sections, we can sort of compare and contrast how later sure. thought develops those ideas. And so one thing that stands out to me, uh, in a, in a thing, a piece on, and pr- forgive me if I'm mispronouncing the names, but Sadia Ben Joseph Gayon. Um, no. Gowen, yeah. okay. Um, so, the, And this essay, it's called Two Ways of Being One. It tackles whether Scripture should be taken literally or not. And so this is a, a question that evangelical fundamentalists still sort of wrestle with. Um, and it, it suggests that our limitations, our linguistic and cognitive limitations, kind of require us to, to speak about God not as a whole, but in terms of distinct attributes. Um, and this ultimately kind of leads to a critique of Trinitarianism. Uh, can you elaborate on this stance and talk about how Christians might might benefit a little bit from this encounter.
2: Sure. So that was really like four different questions packed into I know. one. <laughs> I apologize. Um, and so you will feel free to interrupt me and redirect me if I go on a little too long on this one. But first, let me give you just a little background. So this this figure, Sadia Gaon, as he's often known, um, he's uh, lives in the ninth century of the Common Era, and he, um, uh, you know, at this point, uh, if you know, if one knows one's history. Um, the, the Jews have largely been sent into exile. They're starting to spread around the world, and really, probably the most prominent Jewish community, certainly from an intellectual point of view, is in Babylon at this at this particular point, Iraq, contemporary Iraq. And Sadia is the Gaon is actually a title. He's the he's the um, leader of this community in Babylon, so he's a very prominent person, and um, you know he's doing a chunk of philosophizing about these. These issues. So the particular issue uh, in question in this chapter uh, is first, um, how how does one read the Bible? Um, And that itself brings up a really major division which is explored at a number of points in this book, which is, um, from the beginning of philosophizing about the Bible, the Hebrew Bible I'm focusing on, um, there's been a distinction between, let's say, the way the philosophers approach the issues, and the way maybe the religious authorities and the common person approaches the issues. So, you know, you, you can't but read the beginning of the Hebrew Bible. There's lots and lots of fascinating stories and lots of characters. Um, uh, God is portrayed in a certain way in those in those stories. He's portrayed very much like a human being. He appears in the Garden of Eden, he walks around, the references are made to his body and to his voice, and, and things along those lines. And um, That's how the Bible portrays God, very much as a a person in a personal way with these lovely stories, which of course are are, uh, amenable to centuries worth of exegesis and analysis. Um, But the philosophers have always tended to resist these stories. Um, As soon as you start thinking philosophically about God, it becomes... Very attractive to think of God as not quite, and I know this will be a big difference Let's say Christianity, but that God is not a a human person. God is much more magnificent than humans, certainly ordinary human beings are. God, you get to ideas such as God is infinite in being, God is omnipotent, all-powerful, all-knowing, not a physical thing, not a physical creature. What God created was the physical universe, but God himself is not a physical being. These are very attractive ideas certainly to philosophers. But that's not quite what you see in the Hebrew Bible. You see God as a kind of a finite person with a body walking around, very similar to human beings, if perhaps slightly more exalted. So right away, if you're a philosopher, you're going to have a little bit of trouble reading the Hebrew Bible, because it's going to sound to you like it's not literally true. It can't be literally true. If you've got philosophical reasons to think of God in the way I described a moment ago, then whatever's going on in the Bible is not a literal description of God. So that's a a big and ancient and important divide, and sometimes people refer to the philosopher's God, i.e., God as philosophers conceive of him, versus God as the Bible, or God as sort of ordinary people conceive of him. So Sadia is very much, you know, in the midst of this particular issue, and uh so he's he's giving his particular position as a philosopher first and foremost in the jewish tradition there's this idea that god is one it's a great sort of um it's it's um part of a prayer that jews say um several times every day um it's the calling cry of judaism shema yisrael which means hero israel the lord our god the lord is one so this idea that god is one god as a unity is as fundamental idea for jews as there could be but the problem is when you start looking at the bible it's not so obvious that god is one in any sense um and there's at least two different two different ways of describing that point on the one hand the bible the hebrew bible uses two very different words when it's speaking about god so sometimes it speaks of adonai other times it speaks so it uses the word elohim uh, which in the original hebrew can very much sound like it's talking about two different beings altogether as if there are two gods which is uh unacceptable to the jewish philosophers even uh, more complicating uh, than that is that this word Elohim is, in, is a plural form of Hebrew. So the, probably the more accurate def, um, translation of it would be gods, maybe with a small g. So there's not only Adonai in the Hebrew Bible, there's also this other thing that's called gods <laughs> in the plural. So if, if you are committed to the idea that God is one and there's only one God, so that's one meaning of that phrase, right away the Hebrew Bible is going to give you challenges. Did you want to jump
0: in there. Um, yeah, that is actually uh, the opening line of this um, of this chapter. Let me just kind of read it, because I think it captures what you're saying. Scripture says much, maybe too much, from a philosopher's point of view, since many passages seem to contradict each other or the di- dictates of reason. But of course, Scripture can never really conflict with reason, according to Sadia, Ben Joseph Gion. Uh So when this occurs, something has to give. In his view, it's the strictly literal sense of the text, right? In, in that's what has to give right and so yeah um yeah go ahead keep going
2: philosophers are committed to there is only one god for various philosophical reasons if scripture seems to suggest otherwise you have to go back and reread the scripture in a way to make it consistent with your philosophical dictates Exactly. that's that's what he's doing
0: exactly um and so um can you then talk a little bit about um how this leads to a critique of trinitarianism um
2: sure So, you know, the the first problem is there's supposed to only be one God, and yet we've got these different words for this being in the Hebrew Bible, and so his solution to that is to say, well, these different words are just um, different names for the same single being, and what they highlight um, are different attributes or aspects of that being. So when one name is used, when God is being merciful, for example, the text will use one name, but when he's um, displaying his divine justice, it will use the other name. So you've got this idea that those two different names are picking out different aspects of God, but it's still one single God. So that that sort of solves that first problem, but it immediately generates the next problem, which, by the way, is how philosophy always goes. As soon as you solve one problem, (laughs) you generate a whole set of new problems. So your work is never finished, for better or for worse.
0: For better. It's all better. Yeah,
2: yeah, right. Uh, It's a work in progress, as we like to say. actually as a a well-known rabbi rabbi Beryl wine likes to say doing philosophy is like having a blanket that's a little too small like you you oh there's always something sticking out you pull it up to cover your shoulder and your foot sticks out you pull it down to cover your foot and your elbow sticks out so <laughs> that's kind of what we have here so the solution to the first problem is these different names just pick out different um attributes or aspects of the one single god but now we've got the problem that god's pretty clearly through the bible Seems to have a lot of different attributes or aspects. He's not only merciful and just; he's also powerful, and he's alive, and he's wise or intelligent. Uh, the Bible, ref- the Hebrew Bible, refers to his spirit and his voice and his emotions. So God has a lot of aspects, a lot of properties or attributes, to use a more technical term. And the problem is the other reading of this famous phrase that God is one. The first reading is that there's only one God, but the other reading is that God is one in his nature, God is a unity, meaning not composed of different parts or components. Mm-hmm. Now, there's interesting philosophical reasons for that. Philosophers are very committed to the unity of God, the oneness, not just that there's one God, but that God is not, a, not divisible or, or dividable into different components. But the Bible itself now talks about God's many, many aspects or attributes. So the question is, how do you reconcile that multiplicity of attributes with this sort of essential oneness of God's nature? And so Sadhya has a particular, you know, way of responding to that. Basically, um, for Sadhya, it has to do with the limitations of our own language and our own intelligence. So for us, for example... um, Uh, The word power, or powerful, and the word wise, or wisdom, or intelligence, or knowledge, all of those things, those are different concepts for us, because in our ordinary experience of the world, it's easy to distinguish power from intelligence. People can be very powerful, but not very intelligent. They can be very intelligent, but not very powerful. So those are different concepts for us. We have different words in our language that denote those different concepts. When we apply them to God, um, however what we're um, doing is applying our ordinary concepts and ordinary language that have an application in our ordinary life to a being who ultimately transcends those. So, for Gosadya, in God, God's power is actually one and the same thing as His knowledge, and one and the same thing as His justice, and one and the same thing as His mercy. So, while our language and our concepts distinguish these attributes, In God these attributes are all identical and one thing. So what we have in the Hebrew Bible is this appearance of a multiplicity in God, this appearance of these diverse attributes and aspects, but ultimately if God's power is literally identical with God's justice, let's say, then these things do not denote a multiplicity in God. So that's how he reconciles the multiplicity of the Biblical text, with the philosophical demand that God be a unity,
0: yeah, and, and that's uh, that's really compelling, actually, and and it's a really great philosophical question. And personally, I think it's something that um, ought to challenge Christians in a good way to sort of think as they think about the nature of God, right? And so, right, um, and, and so this is one of those places in the book where, for you know, non-Jews, for Gentile readers, for Christian readers, I think there's a lot of um, material. To spark challenging thought that is actually beneficial, challenging in a beneficial way, right?
2: So you, you nicely noted that I didn't answer the sort of the key essential part of your question, which is to apply this to Trinitarianism. So yeah.
1: I'll, I'll,
2: I'll say a few more, more words about that. Um, now, I'm certainly no expert on the, the sort of the long, complicated history of the concept of the Trinity and Christianity. But um, what I will say was these Jewish figures, and Sadia were already in the ninth century, but, um, you know, Jews were very aware of the rising of Christianity. It was, you know, originally basically a Jewish sect, and then it became a more universal thing. Um, and lots of obviously tension and conflict between these groups. And Jews were very resistant to this this new movement, um, and certainly um, were subject to various forms of, of oppression once this movement spread and became very powerful. So it's maybe not surprising that Jews and these Jewish thinkers in these first centuries feel a kind of antagonism towards Christianity um. at the time. Christianity is, branches off from them and then begins growing and overwhelming them and oppressing them. So mm. they have a negative feeling towards it. Um, but on the philosophical level, one of the biggest challenges of this new movement from this you know the ancient Jewish perspective is... Um Obviously, the figure of Jesus, who uh, early Christians are trying to figure out Jesus' exact relationship to God, right? That's a big debate in the early centuries of the Catholic Church, Catholic thinking, Christian thinking. Um, but for Jews, this idea that God is a unity, there's one God, and God is not divisible into components or parts. As I said, this is a like, foundational, fundamental concept. And one of these early Christian ideas is very much that jesus is divine or jesus has some relationship to god and to jewish eyes this looks like polytheism basically right this looks like as soon as jesus is understood as divine then if jesus is different from god there's two gods but if you claim that jesus is identical to god but also a human being it looks like this is a very hard concept it looks like a contradiction to some thinkers right like Mm -hmm. uh, god is supposed to be infinite but jesus is finite so how could jesus be identical to god just one kind of argument like that so for jewish thinkers to make sense of these basic christian ideas is very very challenging and so one of the sort of the major philosophical ways of pushing back against this new movement was really to attack it as a form of polytheism Um, and so when jewish early jewish thinkers are responding to the trinity it's because they see this basically they see christians as worshiping three gods essentially god jesus and holy spirit Um, And for them, and for Jews today, the unity of God is so fundamental that unless you can make sense of this Trinity as consistent with a monotheism, you're going to resist it. It's not a surprise, this is, uh, again, I'm hardly an expert on the Christian history of this concept but in those first centuries Christians are also grappling with this question right mm-hmm. they they've got various reasons to endorse something like the Trinity but conceptually it's a very very hard thing to understand it's a it's a it's got it's it's a three but it's a one <laughs> um, and there's lots of different moves that Christian thinkers are making to make sense of it what would be interesting I don't I'm sure there must be work on this i'm not I'm not familiar with it but you know, Sadia, and then a couple of centuries later, Maimonides is dealing with this issue in the way that you know I just summarized in the chapters in this book. That we use a multiplicity of words to denote what's actually a unity in essence. Right? Uh, it would be really interesting. I know there was at least one early Christian heresy. Was is it Sabellianism? Does that ring a bell? I don't know. No, but yes. I think what I recall of what I think is Sabellianism is that it's essentially Sadia's approach to this problem, but it's condemned as a heresy mm. early on. Um, but, you know, it's one of many approaches. Christians are trying to reconcile a threesome with a onesome, so to speak, and it's not an easy thing to do conceptually. Um, it would be really interesting to see the degree to which um, uh, and this might be of interest to your, you know, your Christian listeners. The degree to which Christians are making the same moves as Sadia, and then later Maimonides is making, because they also want to reconcile a multiplicity of attributes with a unity of essence. So there's something very similar in the problem. Uh, I don't know exactly why Sabellianism was deemed a heresy and is unacceptable to, you know, the Orthodox. I haven't studied that, but it would be really interesting to see how these. Jewish thinkers' approach to a very similar problem is reflected in or adapted by or maybe criticized by um, Christians who are grappling with this problem.
0: Yeah, and that's one of the great uh, values of this book, I think, for a Christian reader is to, because, I mean, we're used to sort of seeing Paul's defenses or explanations of Christ's div- divinity uh, in, in the Pauline letters, uh, and to see that debate from another angle, I think, is super instructive, and, and, and I think that it's uh, one of the most fascinating aspects of reading this historical survey of Jewish thought as it, exists alongside and in conversation with um, Greek and emerging Christian thought um, historically. And I I just think it's great. Um, So there are um, a a number of uh, topics that uh, you sort of introduce in this first section of the book. And I think for the sake of time, I just want to kind of point at them. You talk about um, sort of the distinction between Believing something and doing things uh, in the, uh, the in the essay "Do the Right Thing for the Right Reasons" by Bakya Ibn Pakwood, Pakuda, Pakuda. Uh, 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 which I addresses that's how I say it, Pakuda. <laughs> okay, it addresses the distinction between knowledge and deed, and argues that sort of both are simultaneous and need the other, right? And so this kind of yeah. very interestingly correlates to the, Christ, the way Christians often put it as faith versus works, right? Uh, right. And, and so that that's one of the topics that you talk about. Another is whether God. Like, like the idea of free will, like does um, does God sort of um, predestine everything, and if he's not predestining everything, then does that undermine his power? These are all questions that you bring up um, through the lenses of these various early Jewish thinkers. Um, and um, But then uh, I want to kind of shoot forward into the second and third and fourth sections of the book, so just so, so we have enough time to fairly cover everything. Um, part two of the book makes a division um, in Jewish thought marked by Miamides. Um Can you explain his importance and legacy and, and how does he change the conversation from the previous section
2: well, that's a great question but I'm gonna go back to what you, the no, earlier thing you said just briefly and no, I'll come back to no problem yeah. um, you know the question of free will predeterminism and God's foreknowledge is is just an awesome question and I think any anyone who's uh, inclined to be religious a religious thinker or a religious practitioner needs to spend time studying this question and this issue. So when I wrote the God question, one of the things that most struck me was, first of all, how many of the great primarily Christian thinkers weighed in on this question, whether it's um, you know, Boethius or Aquinas or Occam or Scotus or the sort of the, the major ones, um, uh, Suarez uh, a little bit later, and others, uh, Molina, I think. Um, what was fascinating to me was first of all it's a really interesting complicated problem and I'm happy to elaborate on it if you if you
1: want. No please do. But
2: there are many different strategies for responding to it and you know one of the lessons I took away as I as I wrote that book and learned more about per- particularly sort of Christian medieval philosophical theology to use fancy terms was all of these individuals that I mentioned Boethius Aquinas Scotus Occam um, Molina Suarez they're all great and good Christians, but it turns out, because they answer this problem very, very differently, they really have fundamentally different concepts of God. That's what it comes down to. Mm. The different ways of answering this problem end up being different conceptions of the nature of God, but they're all good Christians. But it turns out you can be a good Christian and really have lots of different ideas about what God is. <laughs> so I, that, that moved me very deeply, and so... Um, and, and that was one of the particular issues that when I started turning to Jewish thinkers, I said, you know, all these, these really smart Christians are, are weighing in with really smart moves, different moves here. What are the Jews doing during this period? And I was sort of relieved to discover that it turns out the Jews were having exactly the same conversation during these centuries, and essentially coming up with all the same possible moves and positions. Uh, and indeed, in the end, you know, different Jewish thinkers have really different conceptions of God because of the way they answer this Classic problem about reconciling God's foreknowledge and human free will, and that's actually a good um, segue. Well, no, I could go back to the Ibn Pakuda stuff, but you wanted to talk about Maimonides, so so now I'll, I'll turn to Maimonides. Um, Maimonides is um, he lives in the 12th century. Um, he's sometimes called um, the Jewish Aquinas. He gets that nickname. Because he sort of has a comparable status to Jewish thought as Aquinas ha- had to many subsequent centuries of Christian thought, I've always thought that that nickname's a little unfair. Because um, Maimonides actually lived a century before Aquinas, and Aquinas himself was influenced by Maimonides. So really, <laughs> Aquinas is the Christian Maimonides. That's how I would put <laughs> it. Um, I happen to love both thinkers uh, just about equally. So, so Maimonides is this absolutely towering figure in the history of Jewish thought in the 12th century, as I mentioned. Um, uh, lived originally in Spain, and then was essentially expelled from Spain as uh, Spain fell under Islamic control, uh, ended up uh, moving to and settling in Egypt, where he became the physician to the um, the caliph, uh, the sultan. Um, uh, and what makes him so, amongst the many things that make him so important, is this. He was first and foremost a great rabbi. He was a religious Jew whose works on Jewish law, the nature of Halakha, which is Jewish law, were just absolutely towering and influential, so that although, you know, he lived in 12th century Egypt, Cairo today, basically, um, uh, and this was long before the Internet and long before postal systems, he was sort of a leading Jewish figure worldwide in Jewish communities who were spread out all over the world. He became sort of a single authority in the way that hadn't happened before. Jews were always spread out with different local communities, no centralized power or authority. Maimonides, just by the stature of his work on Jewish law, became kind of the recognized world leader of Jewish thought. That's um, why he was respected and influential. The problem was, in addition to being this unbelievable thinker in Jewish law steeped in the Talmud and the Bible, He was also a philosopher, very much a philosopher the way we see in the Greek tradition, very influenced. He was an Aristotelian, very influenced by Aristotle. Mm. And he wanted essentially to reconcile Jewish religiousness with philosophical thought, very much in the way that Aquinas is doing something similar, reconciling Aristotle with Christian thought. Um, The problem is those reconciliations are not always so smooth or easy. And, you know, in the Aquinas case, you know, um, Aristotle's works had essentially been banned and condemned by the Christian Church prior to Aquinas because they taught a number of things that seemed to conflict with important Christian doctrine. I'll just mention one. Aristotle argued that the world, the universe, um, did not have a first moment or beginning, but has existed eternally, has always existed. And that seems to conflict with, you know, chapter 1 verse 1 of the book of Genesis in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth so for that reason Aristotle was seen as anti-christian and his works were banned but Aquinas comes along in the 13th century and he has this whole project of basically reconciling Aristotle um, that and many others with Christianity well Maimonides essentially has the same project a century earlier reconciling uh, Aristotelian philosophy with Jewish thought And the problem is, as I said, those reconciliations are not always so easy or smooth, and many Jewish figures initially saw Maimonides' philosophical work as essentially rejecting Judaism. So you have, in this one figure, this towering authority in Judaism, in Jewish law, who also does philosophy that seems to many to contradict Jewish faith, Jewish religion, etc. So... You have this circumstance where he's simultaneously revered while they're burning his philosophical books. It's a really unique situation in intellectual history. He's revered, revered the person, burn his books, maybe you could say something like that. We burn the philosophical books. Um, and so that's why he's so important. He's this world leader, but he's also you know, incredibly well steeped in, uh, in Greek philosophy and is controversial because he's trying to make Judaism speak in the language of Greek philosophy
0: um yeah and so one uh one kind of introduction that he brings into this conversation um is the the idea of theodicy like sort of the the problem of evil in the world right um that's kind of a uh, a rather that's an innovation that you see in this this period you're talking about do you want to talk a little bit about what he has to say about that and how that conversation
1: goes sure
2: so you know the problem of evil is one is also one of these classic problems um the, the foreknowledge free will one um is maybe not as widely appreciated by everyone, but it's still, you know, a classic philosophical problem. But the problem of evil certainly goes way back at least to the book of Job as part of the Bible, right? That's the fundamental question in the, in the book of Job. Here's this otherwise good person who is, you know, suffering these horrible things and how do we make sense of that? So the, the, the problem is an old one. Um, and as I often like to say, I, I do have the privilege of teaching philosophy of religion on a fairly regular basis. So, um, you know, the problem of evil is a main, main subject in that kind of course, and as I like to say, there's all sorts of philosophical arguments for the existence of God, and those people who are atheists tend to fill their time, you know, refuting those arguments for the existence of God. That's what they do. Ah, oh, that's not convincing. Here's the flaw in that argument. There's really only, as far as I'm aware, one major argument for atheism, like a positive argument they make against the existence of God, and that's the problem of evil. Um, and it's, it's an obvious problem. How can an all-powerful, merciful, fundamentally, or even infinitely good God create a world in which so many people suffer, especially good people, especially, you know, righteous people? How is it that he can tolerate that? So it's a, it's a big problem, and anyone who's um, a religious person at some point and interested in sort of thinking through their religious ideas at some point has to grapple with that problem and figure out what they think and figure out what to say. So it goes back to Job. Um, uh, I'm sure it's dis- it's discussed in the Talmud, sort of in passing here and there, as far as I'm aware. I'm certainly, no expert on the Talmud. But when you get to Maimonides in the 12th century, he offers um, at least one of many possible strategies here. Um, uh, there's one that's kind of technical, so I will. Um, I think I won't get into it. Um, I know Augustine also, uh, many centuries earlier, um, develops this line, but. Um, The problem of evil has many facets, so I'm going to mention a response to one facet of it. It's hardly a complete solution, but it's a partial solution to one part of it. So my favorite part of Maimonides' treatment of this is to recognize the degree to which our judgments about what we take to be evil are actually self-centered, egocentric judgments. Mm -hmm. So, What I mean by that is we all have this tendency that if you know, if our own particular plans or intentions or goals get foiled, we're suffering an evil, right? Like, how could this happen to me? I didn't get that promotion, let's say. My book didn't sell, or whatever it might be. Or, you know, my uh, I didn't get into the school I wanted to get into. So we feel like those are bad things, and I, I deserve better, right? We're all like that. We feel like we, we deserve the best for ourselves. And what he suggests is that, at least many of our judgments, and again, this is only partial. So there are real sufferings and real horrible things that people endure and suffer every day, and you know, I'm not ignoring those or dismissing those. But many things that we think of as evils, he said, those judgments are just self-centered. We imagine that you know the world is supposed to be all about our needs, our personal needs and interests, and when it foils us, there's something terribly unjust going on. But he, you know, argues. That, you know, individual people and even all of humanity are but the tiniest components in a cosmos that's just immensely vast and that the cosmos isn't made worse um, because some beings enjoy less goodness than other beings but it's actually made more beautiful and interesting because of the tremendous variety of beings that it contains. So the fact that some people are rich and some people are poor, you know, the poor person says, unfair, unjust, it's not, why is that person rich and I'm the poor person? What Maimonides urges us to do is step out of that and say, you know what, there's something interesting and valuable and maybe beautiful by the diversity, this maybe is not the best example, but, you know, by the diversity of wealth, or so maybe a controversial example, but <laughs> by the diversity of goods by that. the fact that some people are stronger than others, and some are weaker, some are smarter, some are less smart, some are richer, some are poor, right? There's something fascinating about that diversity, and you're you're being self-centered when you say, but why do I have to be the poor one? Why do I have to be the dumb one, right? Like You have to step outside your personal egocentric perspective and look at the, the whole thing. And, uh, you know, again, that only addresses a small aspect of the problem of you, but it's a really important one once you become aware of that, uh you know i i i like to when i teach this i i use he he actually uses an example like this but you know if you look at just biodiversity right there's human beings who like to think of ourselves on top of this great chain of being and then you go all the way down to you know like the ants and You could almost imagine, um, you know, an ant saying to himself, like, "Well, why do I have to be an ant? Why can't I be the person? Like, it's so unfair! Like, people—they're so intelligent and they're so powerful and they're so competent and they can, you know, build houses and cars and airplanes, whatever it is, like whatever's allegedly valuable about human beings." Unfair that I have to be the ant, you know. But of course, there's something wrong with that perspective because when we step out and we look at biodiversity, there's something just gorgeous and beautiful about diversity. So someone has to be the ant, and it's going to be the ants. They're going to be the ants. Right. So that's what he's urging us to do. And I actually find that it's really helpful. Like when I'm complaining, which is my nature, I'm a complaining sort of person. <laughs> this didn't go my way. That didn't go my way. I remind myself about Maimonides, who, by the way, had a very difficult, challenging life um, in many, many respects. I reminded myself, like, all right, you know, I didn't get the thing that I wanted, but maybe, you know, the world is better because it's got this diversity of outcomes for different people. So. So it's one small aspect of the problem of evil. But it's one that I, I particularly
0: value. Yeah, it's interesting, and it also it seems to be on some level uh, a development from the idea of free will, from the from the problem of free will. Uh, and so, yeah. like a lot of uh, so, there seems to be a way in which he takes that existing conversation and aims it at a different question. Right? He spins the question around a little bit. Um, and, right. and and you talked about how. Controversial that one example you gave is, but in general, Maimonides is pretty, um, Maimonides, excuse me, is pretty uh, uh, controversial. You say in the book, no, not everyone agrees with Maimonides on most issues. In fact, almost everyone disagrees on almost every issue, right? right. But um, that's almost what makes him a, a valuable thinker because it, it, it's instigating the conversation through time, right? Um, right? And so much of that second section bounces off of him.
2: Right, really, the majority—you you cannot um, study or learn a little bit about basically medieval Jewish philosophy without beginning with Maimonides, because most of it is, you know, he sort of sets the table, he sets the agenda, he comes up with his particular positions on all these different problems, and then all the later thinkers, most of the later thinkers, are essentially responding to him. As a, you know, as I said, many of them are disagreeing, but he's absolutely establishing the conversation, and so he's—he he is the the domineering, the dominant figure, at least from the 12th century up until the early modern period, which usually starts with
0: Spinoza. And that's a perfect transition. So in the yeah. the third part of your book, we kind of get into sort of generally the enlightenment era and uh, it's sort of dominated by Spinoza uh, and his influence on these questions. And so um, how does he change this conversation? So part of it, his idea is to sort of remove the supernatural, right? And that, that's a, that's a development. So talk a little bit about yeah. Spinoza.
2: So Spinoza is just such a fascinating figure. Um, uh, his, the, was raised, raised as a Jew. Baruch Spinoza is his name. I chose to use that name in the in the title for a couple of chapters um, talking about aspects of his thought. Uh, he lived uh, sixteen thirty two to sixteen seventy seven. So the onset early stages. He's a leading early figure in the Enlightenment, as you as you mentioned earlier. Um, But um, amongst his many claims to fame, of course, is that he was excommunicated by the Jewish community in Amsterdam, where he lived, and we have the text of that excommunication, and it's really, I don't have it in front of me, but it's really quite vicious. They were really condemning this young whippersnapper for his heretical opinions, essentially. Um, And he came to be known by a Latin version of his name, Benedict Spinoza. So he never did convert to Christianity, but he absolutely, he was kicked out of um, Orthodox judaism there was only orthodox judaism in that period so he was kicked out of it but it was you know it was the kind of thing like you can't fire me i quit but he, he had clearly <laughs> left the community prior to their excommunicating him uh and indeed there's some question if this is a book you know if this were a book about jewish philosophy there are people who argue spinoza doesn't belong in such a book although he was born and initially raised a jew he, re- he rejects judaism he rejects the fundamentals all aspects of judaism so it's something's a little questionable about considering him a Jewish thinker. This, um, you know, I'm I'm not going to get involved in that issue. He, He certainly was raised a Jew, and what he next does, just as Maimonides essentially sets the table for the next five centuries of thinkers, Spinoza essentially does the same for the next couple of centuries, at least. Um, and so even if you wanted to argue he doesn't belong in a book about what Jewish thinkers have to say, uh, the reality is you, you can't understand a lot of what the subsequent thinkers say unless you know what he said. So he's got to be there just for the sake of completeness. Um, and you mentioned, um, you know, one idea. He's famous for rejecting the supernatural, so uh, maybe that's even enough to make the point. Um, depending on how you conceive of God, it's usually a fundamental idea that God is different from nature. God created nature. God created the laws of nature. These are sort of basic ideas in Judaism and in Christianity for many, many centuries. And um, although Spinoza's metaphysics is quite challenging to understand, very abstract, deep thinker, at least his famous slogan comes out fairly clearly. His slogan was God, comma, or nature, meaning that more or less for him, God and nature become synonymous. Hmm. And to say that God is synonymous with nature, if you're a religious person, is to reject the existence of God because you think of God as supernatural, and instead just you know leave yourself with nature. It's not always clear that that's the best um, interpretation of him. What he might have said, I'm not a good enough expert here, but he might have said, no, I'm a theist. I believe that God exists, but I identify God with nature. So if you, person, whoever's listening, right, like, if in your mind God is distinct from nature, then when you say nature exists, you are denying God's existence. But he seems to want to say, no, no, God exists, but he's different from what you thought he was. God is not supernatural. God just is nature. Um, you know. So he would say, I believe in God, I just have a different concept of God, whereas many, and this is how he was received by the religious Jewish community, certainly, is, no, 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 you're rejecting uh, belief in God. So that's one of his big things, the, the second equally big thing was, um, and this is really his, his launching us into modernity, um, he's really uh, the first major thinker to look at the Bible and say that the Bible is just a book, we should treat the Bible as a book that was written by human beings just as any other book written by human beings and you know that might sound small but it's actually quite large because certainly in the jewish tradition for centuries many centuries leading up to this moment uh the five books of moses at least by tradition were dictated by god to moses the books of the prophets were um largely dictated by god the prophecies are the word of god being spoken to the prophets and the hebrew bible includes other books which were written by human beings but under divine inspiration so the Hebrew Bible was understood as a good chunk of it being directly dictated by God, um, and Spinoza comes along and says, "No, it's just a book like any other book. Let's analyze it like any other book," and that really ushers in sort of the modern era. Um, you'll sometimes hear the phrase "biblical criticism" or something like that, treating the Bible like like you would treat a, a work by Shakespeare and mm-hmm. analyze it the way you would treat a literary work. Um And many wonderful things came subsequently from that project but it's it's Spinoza who's really making the divide from a supernatural God who sort of you know magically supernaturally dictates a scripture to what we really have is just nature that's being understood by human beings in different times and different places so that's that's the that's the dawn of modernity I guess from an intellectual point of view
0: absolutely and it's still a question that we live with today I mean recently just in the last few days there's a controversy within Maybe this is a Christian Twitter controversy. <laughs> you know how insular those things can be. Um, but there was uh, some controversy about teaching uh, the Bible, Bible classes in schools again. And Trump apparently had some uh, advocacy of this. And then Jonathan Merritt wrote something about how this is actually a bad idea because you don't want... Biblical instruction in the hands of just anybody, sort of, right? And so, right. and um, a really great uh, blogger that I follow named Adam Lats, who wrote a really great book called Fundamentalist University. Um, he uh, he actually gave a historical breakdown in a lot of ways. Um, conservative thinkers. We're against teaching the Bible in school. Conservative Christians were against teaching the Bible in school for this very reason. But there's right. what he calls this, uh, what's he called it? The grassroots evangelical, G-R-E-S, um, in his, uh, in his recent blog post. They're for this because they see scripture as some sort of like magical thing that just put it in front of people <laughs> and it's going right. to sort of <laughs> Do it spell right, and so yeah, and so I think that's a contemporary conversation that's related to the one that Spinoza kind of generates uh, in, in in this book, and so yeah,
2: absolutely.
0: Um, and on the subject of Spinoza, one more, if I can take one more digression, um, yeah. I'm I'm a huge fan of Cynthia Ozick, uh, who's uh, one of my favorite writers, and her yeah. her work very much is a response. She's an Orthodox uh, Chris, or Jew, and so she um, she um, is very much. Observant, right? And, and so she's, but she's also very engaged with the philosophical traditions you're talking about. And Spinoza kind of inspires quite a bit of her great work. Um, the the Pagan Rabbi is a really terrific uh, short story. I'm familiar with that. Okay. Uh, it's about a rabbi who sorts, falls in love with a tree, basically. And, and it's, um, oh. and her work is sort of typical, uh, typic- typified by magical realism. So in some ways, she's trying to reinsert magic and the supernatural into her work, um, maybe as a response to Spinoza. But he, I, I, wow. if I can remember correctly, I believe that rabbi in that story is very influenced by Spinoza and sees nature as God. And this is sort of part of his motivation to become this pagan rabbi. Um, and so if wow, it, in terms of, uh, uh, for any listener out there who wants to Kind of think about these through the through the lens of art. I highly recommend almost anything by Cynthia Ozick, and so and particularly that story. So wonderful.
2: Well, I thank you for that recommendation. I will check out that story, and I, I know a little of her work, but um, I, I'm eager to learn more. So thank you.
0: Yeah, yeah, she's one of my favorites. Um, and so um, let's kind of uh, move on into the, the 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 recent time that your book. Um, <coughs> Excuse me. Addresses. If part three of the book documents the increased focus on what it is to be Jewish in the developing and developing Enlightenment, then part four is strictly about Jewish identity in modernity. Can you talk a yeah. little bit about Herzl and Levinas and Arendt and uh, and discuss how the thinkers of this section draw on and then transform the Jewish thinking of the past?
2: So, if I were to fully address that question, that would be another hour, which I'm sure you don't want. <laughs> uh, but let me. Let, so this. I realize I actually used the word modernity, so with Spinoza, so we we, we have this funny thing in the academy that the modern, at least certainly in philosophy, but more broadly as well, the modern period is kind of 17th and 18th century, um, and now by the 20th century we're in a postmodern period. So if Spinoza launches modernity, with something else is happening as we get to the 20th century, um, maybe postmodernity, whatever, if if that's not an oxymoron, that's a a weird word. Um, So with that that caveat... um, Uh, You know, basically, um, part four begins with Herzl, who is the founder of political Zionism. Uh, Zionism, modern political Zionism, being the idea that the the Jews should return from exile and found their own state again. And it's important to stress the word again, because from the Jewish perspective... Um, The Jews were a sovereign people who had various degrees of autonomy for at least a thousand years, from roughly a thousand BCE, as I mentioned earlier, um, until the destruction of Judea by the Romans in the first century of the CE. So for Jewish tradition, from the first century onward, Jews were in exile from the homeland where they had really formed as a people and had something like sovereignty or at least autonomy for over a millennium. Um, And so the... Jews returning to the land of Israel to found a state was seen very much not as the founding of a new state, but as a return from exile to their their ancient homeland. Um, and Herzl is the one that, it's, he doesn't come up with this idea, it's actually an old idea, literally from the first minutes that Jews were being expelled by the Romans in the first century from Jerusalem, they were hatching plans to return and come back. So um the idea of Jews returning is not at all original. It's a constant theme of Jewish thought for two thousand years prior to Herzl. Next year in, next
0: year in Jerusalem, right?
2: Next year in Jerusalem has been part of the basically the liturgy, the Passover Seder for many, many centuries. Yeah. Um and many other examples in the liturgy. Um so but Herzl in 1896 publishes his famous booklet called The Jewish State, where he's sort of serious that now is the time to take concrete steps to make this happen. And that becomes really, in the same way that Maimonides dominates the subjects for the five centuries after him, and then Spinoza dominates the conversation for the next two and a half centuries after him, Herzl and Zionism, dominate the conversation for the 20th century. So that's a sort of natural break for the book. Um, one of the you know major themes for Jewish thinkers from Herzl into the 1950s is Zionism. Should the Jews return to this homeland? Should they set up a state? What should that state look like? Those are the major questions that are being discussed. Um, there's a whole bunch of subsidiary questions that go in there, including what's the relationship between... Re- being a religious Jew and this political project, many religious Jews were initially against the project for religious reasons, but others were for it. Um, uh, what do we do with the fact that by the 19th century into the 20th century, Orthodox Judaism is now just one denomination, and it becomes possible to become uh, what we'll call a Reformed Jew, or uh, almost a secular Jew the possibility of a non-religious Jewish identity becomes a very prominent one by the 20th century, which then also raises questions about and what our relationship be to this idea of founding or re-establishing a Jewish state. There were many reformed Jews, typically, where reasonably assimilated Jews, let's say, in European countries and the United States, And they felt like their home as a Reformed Jew was in the countries that they were living in. uh, I may be Jewish, but I'm French, so I belong in France. Whereas here was Herzl coming along and saying, you know, Jews are a people separate from their religion. They're an ethnic group, a nation, and and therefore they belong in their national home, which is, you know, the, the land of Israel or to be established in the land of Israel. So these become really the major questions of conversation for many, many Jewish thinkers as we get into the... 20th century um so i don't know if you want to then follow that into particular ones but that's certainly an overview of part four of the book
0: um yeah well let's talk a little bit about levinas um, um okay. in, in the uh the idea that you sort of oh gosh experience god by your treatment of the other sort of right yeah um and and the state of israel then becomes a mechanism to do that am i'm am I reading too much into that
2: uh no i think that's that's fair so you know levinas is a um 20th century French Jewish philosopher. He you know, lived, I think, 1906 to 1995, so you know, coincident with most of the 20th century. He's a very rich and deep and difficult philosophical thinker, but he's got a really beautiful idea. The, the one idea I pulled out of him for the book um, is, I think, a beautiful idea, um, which is to, uh, and, and it's actually part of the reform tradition that I just made reference to a moment ago. But the basic idea, to probably oversimplify, is to say that the essence of Judaism, and maybe he would say this similarly um, about Christianity as well. I, I don't know if he's written about Christianity. Um, I'm reminded here of Immanuel Kant, the great German philosopher in the 18th century, who basically says the essence of Christianity is morality. Right, the, All the other supernatural stuff, there's questions and problems about that, but really, the essence of Christianity is, more, is pr- promoting moral behavior. And I think Levinas is in that tradition with respect to Judaism. He, he dresses it in some of the technical terms of his philosophy, but the basic idea is that, um, you know, the essence of Judaism, and therefore Jewish identity, is becoming an, an ethical person, being a good person, He makes reference to a phrase which has become very prominent in recent years. Tikkun olam is this Hebrew expression, roughly means something like repairing the world. And what you see now in early 21st century Judaism is the idea that all of Judaism boils down to this obligation, that our job is to fix the world, repair the world, i.e., basically pursue morality, pursue social justice, etc. In a separate conversation, I would argue that's not at all the essence of this religion and that it's actually a perversion, but that's a separate conversation. Okay, um, That's a very prominent idea, and I think, uh, you know, Levinas mentions it. And so for him, um, the state of Israel, you know, maybe first and foremost, what drives a lot of Zionists in the middle part of the century is certainly the Holocaust, and Jews are the genocide, and Jews are oppressed, and so for just... Safety and security, the Jews need their own sovereign state just to continue to live because they're obviously after the Holocaust, you could one can appreciate that necessity. But, but more than that, um, for him, the state of Israel offers a special opportunity. Judaism has an all you know, lots and lots of laws, and a lot of them have to do with what we would call social justice. And that the state of Israel becomes, I think you said, an instrument, it becomes a way for Jews to really develop and practice their ideals about you know, um, uh, social justice, basically, uh, as a collective entity. When you are dispersed people living in, in you know, different groups, you don't have the, the power or the means um, to really pursue large-scale social justice ends, but one thing the State of Israel could do is allow Jews to develop this, which for him is really the essence of the Jewish religion.
0: Okay. Um, And and so let me um, build to one final question, then. Um, I really appreciate your time. This is a vast survey of thought, right? And we're going to have done it in just over an hour, right? And so uh, I just want to, first of all, encourage anyone listening to go out and pick this book up, The Jewish God Question by Andrew Pesson. It's a really, really great um, book. And I tell you what, I can't even even articulate how thought-provoking it is. Just each one of these little essays um, just kind of sparks an ethical philosophical conversation in my own head. And I think anybody listening to the show is going to enjoy it. Um, but the sort of the last thing I want to leave us on is uh Hannah Arendt, if it's okay. Um, I feel like sure. she's a thinker who's become kind of in vogue um, in general political circles. I mean, since the Trump's election, right? We are um, right. this uh, with the rise of the alt right, and people are thinking about the nature of evil again. Um, and, right. and, and her, work on the banality of evil with Eichmann in Jerusalem Um, was super controversial. Even at the time, I remember Saul Bellow thought it was terrible. (laughs) And, uh, and so there's uh, uh, something really kind of important and controversial about what she's doing. And it seems to me um, to fit into this conversation somehow. Do you want to talk a little bit about her?
2: Um, Yeah. Um, Hannah Arendt is a very interesting figure. Uh, As you mentioned, the controversy about her reporting on the Eichmann trial was, you know, Fascinating. She was, um, you know, she. I haven't read a lot of her at some point. I'd like to, because I know she's a great political thinker, and her, her work about totalitarianism is important and continues to be timely. But um, she was uh, very critical of the way um, Jews, i.e. the State of Israel, conducted its prosecution of the famous you know, Nazi officer Adolf Eichmann, was uh, captured in one thousand nine hundred and sixty and brought to the state of Israel. She um, felt there was something wrong with the Jews putting him on trial because she had this i think this abstract notion of justice which makes sense in the abstract, which is that you know you don 't have the the victim um, put on the trial right or you, know, you don 't have the victim serving as judge and jury hmm. of a trial you want something impartial and here were the Jewish people putting on trial in front of you know their own judge and jury. Um, this great uh, offender against the jewish people so um, she also felt that the holocaust wasn't just a crime against jews it was a crime against humanity and therefore should be adjudicated in a, in a more general venue not not the state of israel um, uh... etc and that was seen as very uh, problematic by a lot of jewish thinkers it was felt that um, she did not have um, a, a adequate amount of sympathy and compassion for the jewish victims so that was part of the controversy the other part was her, you know, her famous expression, the banality of evil. Um, mm-hmm. She reported on this trial, was it for The New Yorker, I think it was? Uh, and then after she wrote some pieces, she put it together in a book, which I think is called The Banality of Evil. Certainly that's the phrase that's most famous. And she portrayed this figure, Eichmann. You know, like for, for most of us, the Nazis just represent the epitome of pure evil. To the point where you know you you don't want to say anything positive about these people. Maybe they uh, I don't know. Maybe their trains ran on time, right? But like to begin to even compliment them is to give I don't know to normalize or mainstream what is such pure radical evil that it should not even be discussed. That type of thing, and that's how Eichmann appeared to you know certainly to most Jews and to many I think right thinking people in the world. And in her treatment of him, by referring to the banality of evil, she said, you know, he actually, his at least, was not a radical evil. He was just like a clerk following orders who wasn't really thinking about what he was doing. And this, um, you know, so it wasn't radical evil, it was just banal evil. And um or maybe not even evil at all when you take that to its limits, right? If it's just a non-thinking guy sort of doing what the people around him tell him to do, then it seems like you're excusing him from these crimes. Um, and it was that part of her, I think, which caused really the greatest controversy amongst these Jewish thinkers. This is a representative of this unbelievably evil regime, and she was downplaying it. So um, her work was very controversial, certainly amongst Jewish Jewish thinkers, and... Um, you know, it's a, it's a fascinating book to read. If, uh, if any of your listeners ever do read her book, The Banality of Evil, however, I do also recommend they read some of the subsequent writings that were criticizing her, um, just to get a complete picture of, I think, what's going on in
0: that work. Yeah, that is. I mean, it's important to consider the context. I mean, that was never without controversy. I mean, uh, from the moment it came out, right. And so, um, uh, I mean, the state of Israel is still a young state at that point, and and so there's a lot there's a, a lot of you know obvious passions uh, around that subject, and so um, yeah, that's actually bigger than itself. And and so um, I just, out of curiosity, then, as I know someone who advocates for the state of Israel yourself, yeah. um, like how do you place her notions of the nature of evil within Jewish thought and into the context of the geopolitical state? I know that's a gigantic question. Wow.
2: (laughs) You know, maybe this is a good one to end on by saying, I don't know. (laughs) That's such a big question. I, I don't think of her, you know, she's included in this book because she's, you know, identified as a Jewish person who weighed in on this particular issue. But, to my mind, and I'm certainly no expert on her, but to my mind, um, if this book were a little shorter, I probably wouldn't have included her in it. Mm. Um, she's not really as far as... She's not steeped in the Jewish tradition, as far as I know. She's not necessarily responding to the history of Jewish thought on this problem. She just happened to you know, be writing about this particular trial. Um, I know that she has a famous ex- um, uh, exchange of letters with um, Ger- Gerson sk- Sh- Shalom, who was a, a great um, Jewish intellectual who wrote about mysticism and other things, and he basically accuses her of abandoning her people. Right? Like you're officially Jewish, but you have no feeling for the Jewish people. He says, and you're like a daughter who's gone astray. And she sort of acknowledges, which is not an uncommon thing in 20th century sort of Jewish intellectuals. Um, there are many who are attracted to the idea that, in you know, in the end the jewish identity if it weren't for the state of israel right now which makes it complicated jewish identity should be to disappear right you assimilate this was the original reform movement the original enlightenment ideal jews were allowed to become citizens in european countries in the 19th century but the idea was in a few generations they would they would assimilate they'd intermarry and they'd stop being jews mm-hmm. jews would disappear so and it's not a, it's a common idea amongst jewish intellectuals in the 20th century in the west that you know, uh, I- I'm not Jewish, I'm an American, or I'm a, you know, and she, of course, she was a European who escaped the Nazis, but, um, you know, I'm an American, and uh, I feel more like an American than I feel like a, you know, I'm an American Jew, but the emphasis is on American. There's um, a the famous rabbi, he's now controversial, so um, I won't mention his name, but he used to visit, he's dead now, but he used to visit college campuses, and he would tell the following anecdote. I'd, I'd talk to people, and if they said, you know, I'm a I'm a Buddhist, I'd know that they're a Buddhist. And if they said, I'm a, I'm a Christian, I'd know they're a Christian. But if they said, I'm a human being, I'd know they were a Jew. <laughs> <laughs> and so, like, there's just Jews, many liberal-assimilated Jews are very attracted to the idea of getting rid of their Jewish identity, basically. And we're just, we're citizens of the world, we're citizens of our country, etc., etc. And that's what she was accused of by people who felt at least a little more committed to the Jewish part of their identity. So, um... So in a way, I would be disinclined to put her in the tradition of Jewish thought. She's kind of one of those Jews who have at least one foot out the door type thing. Um, But she belongs in the book because she has something to say about these very important topics that Jews were discussing.
0: Yeah, and even the, I mean, the dissent is part of the conversation Uh, in in terms of this book, right? Even
2: the stepping out the door is one of the things they're talking about. Like, should we step out the door or not, or should we stay home? That's actually one one of these big themes about Jewish identity in the Modern period, the 18th century onwards.
0: Yeah, and I wanted to kind of make sure we mentioned that, that. That's one of the questions is is like why is it important to kind of maybe and some people even argue in, in that last section of the book um, to double down and sort of reinvest in their Jewish identity because it contributes something unique and uh, and powerful to the world, right? And so there's yeah. um, this is not the time to abandon that identity. Um, which um, speaking from the the literary end, so much of American literature in the 20th century really is dominated by by Jewish writers. You think of Roth and Bellow and Malamud and all those folks. Um, yeah. There was that um, moment where I mean assimilation is kind of the the key con, the key question um, that many of them are sort of wrestling with at that point. And um, absolutely. And, and so yeah, this is uh, I can sort of speak from my own professional experience as well. This is a giant uh, part of that conversation as it develops in the 20th century. So um, absolutely. Well, Andrew Pesson, um, I can't thank you enough for uh, taking the time to talk thank to me you. about this book. And um, I, I really enjoyed reading it, and I, I can't recommend it enough to people. These um, They're little micro essays that each one of them uh, instigate a, an amazing conversation. Um, and so if you're a part of some sort of book club or just on your own um, with your friends, I think this is a, a terrific book uh, to pick up and just to kind of get – really great theological convers- and philosophical conversations going, and even political ones, <laughs> as we see here towards the end. Let, so. let
2: me weigh in. Like, If anyone's interested, I have um, a, a number of times participated by Skype with like book clubs that are discussing my stuff, so I'm always happy to do that if, if someone's interested.
0: Oh, that's great. And um, can they reach you at andrewpesson.com? Uh,
2: andrewpesson.com um, absolutely has a link to contact me. Okay. Um, and- that would be
0: great that's great and i will definitely put that up in the uh the links to the show notes um and once again if anybody has any reactions to this uh it's a um always an open call for comments uh you know where to reach us at our facebook page we're on twitter and of course at sectarianreviewpodcast.com um andrew Pesson thank you again thank you again to Kristen philippic for uh for the making the connection here i am eternally grateful to her as well uh for everybody listening uh thanking andrew Pesson my name is danny anderson Thank you for listening to another episode of the Sectarian Review Podcast.